from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Once again, thanks everyone so much for coming, um, and I want to give a special thanks to Christine and George for their wonderful hospitality, and and thank you, Christine, for pu- pulling this together. It's been uh, wonderful, and your uh, your moxie is inspiring. Uh, so I'd like to open it up at this point to questions and answers. Uh, George is going to be going around with the wireless mic, so uh, signal him if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, and please wait until he reaches you uh, with the mic. Um, I'm Reverend Nate, and I have a question about how I could potentially speak to some of my colleagues, rabbis, who are um, in the struggle, as you say. Um, And I'm wondering if the biblical story of Abraham binding Isaac to the altar to raise the knife to sacrifice his son, only to have the, the angel stop and say, You have proven your fear to God. You don't need to anymore. I'm wondering if that story can be an invitation to my colleagues to to listen for the voice of the angel and and not to cut. Well, that's a really uh, that's a it's beautiful that's beautifully put. Thank you very much. Um, I think uh, Abraham the Abraham character in the Bible is an extremely complex one. And he's the same character who's asked to sacrifice his son, the same character who starts the circumcision tradition, uh, you know, according to Jewish tradition. And um, my favorite part of the Abraham story is when he stands up to God, when God's about to destroy, uh, I'm, you'll have to forgive me for always mangling the English pronunciation, but in Hebrew it's Sodom and Amorah, Sodom and Gomorrah, is that, is that the, the right thing in English? Um, and what uh, Abraham says to God in that passage is it, it moves me every time I read it, which is, uh, will the uh, judge of the earth not perform justice? Um, and, and what he does in that instance, to me, is, um, you know, it's, it's inspirational. It's, it's saying that, and it's radical too. It's, it's suggesting that a human being um, can stand on ethical grounds and challenge God himself or God itself, however you prefer to look at that. Um, so to me, that is the, the even more powerful Abraham story to, to talk about something of this nature. And it's part of the part of the Jewish tradition that I most connect with, the moxie, chutzpah, rebellious, uh, you know, rave at God, rave at the universe part. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the, the sacrifice of Isaac is also a very powerful story. And I think that um, in talking to, um, you know, Jews about this, I think we have to be sensitive and um, really look for uh, sources within the tradition um, to sort of say, look, you know, I understand, I appreciate the centrality of uh, ritual circumcision in the Jewish tradition. Um, but as it happens, it contradicts a number of other very powerful uh, values in the Jewish tradition, um, and that's a that's a it's a tough nut to crack, and that's a complicated um, uh, it's a complicated discussion. But uh, I I wish you the best of luck. 
Yeah. I would like to thank you so much about uh, this movie because I have uh, I have my work in uh, opposing uh, circumcision in the Middle East and uh, addressing Islam and the circumcision and uh, now by this movie and uh, other work also from other Jewish uh, background people, I can say to my people that uh, my work is not bizarre, and uh, here are uh, Jews uh, opposing circumcision. Not only me, that uh, coming from uh, from background from uh, Middle East who are opposing circumcision. Thank you. Um, hold the microphone on for a second because um, it's very rare that I I have a, a person of Muslim origin in my audience, and I just want to ask you a few questions if you could share with everybody. Yes, yes of course. Um, my impression is, and this is what I've been telling people, and I hope I'm not wrong, my impression is that um, while circumcision is uh, almost universally practiced um, by Muslim men, uh, that there are two central differences to how it's practiced in Judaism. Number one, uh, it's not as central or as important a ritual for Muslims in the sense that it's not mentioned in the Quran, it's mentioned in the Hadith. Um, and also that it's not performed usually on infants. Are these data points correct? Is that true? Uh, in Egypt, it is uh, performed on infants. Oh, okay. Yeah, only in Egypt. Only in Egypt, but the only rest of Egypt. the Muslim world, it's on children? Uh, yeah, on children, not in, not in infants. Okay, so that's, that's very important information that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, so most infants in Egypt, male yeah. infants, are circumcised. Yeah, 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 of course. And uh, about uh, Islam and circumcision, yes, this is not mentioned in the uh, Quran, and it is mentioned in uh, other books, because Islam is not only one book. Islam is uh, the main book, which is Quran, and other books, which is Hadith and, and uh, all these uh, books coming from ancient scholars. But actually, the true Islam is only the main book, which is Quran, and every other thing is rubbish. Yeah, and I am a scholar also, so I know what I am saying. Every other thing is rubbish. And uh, we have experience to refute every single cause uh, in Islam, how to, uh, in Islam that uh, claimed to be uh, calling for circumcision or promoting circumcision. And uh, actually, uh, when I went to this uh, conference in Berkeley, uh, one uh, guy asked, uh, said to me that he read the translation of Quran. But uh, what I told him, and I told other, others also, that uh, what you have read is rubbish also. Because uh, for how do you think translators do their work? When they come to one uh, expression, they just go to the other books and take the meaning from these other books and give it to you. So they, you, uh, you don't have either the real meaning. But if they apply the real meaning, it will completely change not only circumcision, but many other things. Also. And in just one last question, if I may, um, yeah, and if the audience will indulge me here, because this is a this is a really unique opportunity. Yeah. Um, it, it is uh, in the hadith. It's spoken of as a hygienic measure. Is that correct? That that's the rationale given for it? Yeah, yeah. Not only one hadith, but uh, more uh, hadith is the short statements claimed to be said by the prophet. Right. Yeah, it's more than one. And uh, one of them says that it is uh, something coming by nature, but, uh, that, uh, but it, it, it is not because uh, as you have said, as you have stated that 98% uh, of the men in around the world is, is not uh, doing it. And uh, another hadith is saying uh, that uh, you should imitate what uh, Abraham said, uh, what Abraham uh, did for himself, but uh, he did it for himself as an old man, not uh, as a child. And he did it for himself, by himself. 
So if you want to really to imitate him, wait until you be 80 or 90 like him and do it for yourself. So they, they are not in a strong basis. And uh, if, yeah, and uh, actually it is condemned in Quran to, to, to do it because Quran says that uh, uh, God created a man in a perfect shape and uh, he should maintain this uh, perfect shape and wh whoever deteriorate himself is, uh, is, uh, is not following. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you for so your perspective. Much. Any other questions, comments in the back there? Yeah. I was hoping you could say something about uh, the notion of Brit Mila versus Brit Shalom. Um, would that take the place of all the covenantal requirement in Judaism, especially Orthodox Judaism, or, or do the more Orthodox uh, adherent members of the Jewish faith see that as not an acceptable alternative. Right. So um, this is a really, yeah, people ask me about Brit Shalom uh, on a sort of semi-regular basis. And, um, you know, I just, uh, we just had a screening in uh, Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and a secular humanist rabbi named Benjamin Biber joined us in the panel discussion, and he's actually uh, officiated in a number of uh, I guess it would be uh, Brite Shalom, to be grammatically correct, uh, the plural of Brite Shalom, Brite Shalom. Um, but, um, and I think he confirmed this too. It's a very, very marginal phenomena. And it's not just marginal like among the Orthodox or something. It's non-existent among the Orthodox, among the liberal sort of either conservative or reform Jews. It's not practiced much. It's really like the secular humanist uh, and only a fraction of them. It's an extremely marginal phenomena. It's a great idea. I love it. Uh, I love the idea of the sort of gender equality that, uh, that it um, entails because, um, and that's also one of the attractions that the secular humanist Jews have to it. Um, you know, when a, a Jewish girl is born, um, there's a sort of sense of it's a less than, you know, which I think is really tragic. And the reason is because there's not going to be a bris. And so, you know, people have developed some sort of alternative, you know, kinds of rituals, this and that. But uh, for the most part, you know, I think the Jewish world over, it's like there's this weird sense of, uh, oh, well, there's not really a bris. Like, you know, a relative might not fly out for the celebration of the birth of a girl, but they'll definitely fly out for a bris. Um, so I like that element of it. I, of course, like the fact that no one's uh, having their foreskin forcibly removed. Um, that's something I like about it. In terms of the covenantal side of things, um, I think that the concept of covenant is a very um, poorly defined in the Jewish tradition. Rabbi Lopatin, the modern Orthodox rabbi that I interviewed in here, sort of touched on this. He said, you know, there are people who for legal reasons are not allowed to be circumcised. If you're a hemophiliac, according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to be circumcised. So you go through life in this state of, you know, in Jewish law, it's called arel. It's a, it's a status. Uh, and the one thing, actually, that you can't do is eat from the Paschal Lamb. That's the only thing. And the Paschal Lamb, which is a sacrifice that was brought in the temple over 2,000 years ago, is not something that Jews do anymore. And, um, you know, I don't know if Jews will ever do it again. So the, the actual practical implications of not being circumcised are nil. Um, and there is another, um, you know, very lovely ritual that doesn't involve harming others that is also called a covenant in the Bible, and that's Sabbath. 
the Sabbath is referred to with as uh, as a covenant. Um, and I think uh, I've spoken to a number of rabbis who have said, you know, we'd be perfectly happy if, you know, otherwise non-affiliated Jews decided instead of circumcising their boys to uh, raise them with Sabbath observance, which is a lovely ritual in which you sort of carve out a time space once a week uh, in which you focus on spiritual things and you eat great food and drink lots of wine and talk about important issues. Uh, forgive me if this has been touched on. Um, why do you think there's a big disconnect? Why is it not that big of a deal in, say, for instance, our culture in the United States? Why is it, why is it pushed on people? Uh, for instance, when my son was born, we were asked, and we're not Jewish, we're not any, anything. We were asked no less than seven times to have my son circumcised. And my husband was even approached by one of the nurses when he was being trained in a bathing class as to how, you know, because babies are dangerous and scary and they might drown. But when are you going to get that fixed? Why do you think, in, in seeing and touring our country, why do you think there's this disconnect that our babies are born broken and they need to be fixed? Um, well, I mean, there are historical reasons that I touched on in the film. Um, and, you know, we can talk about the ways in which it got started here and the ways in which it's been perpetuated. Um, but I, I like to think about it in a, a slightly deeper way, which is, um, you know, this is kind of evidence to me that as progressive and scientific and science-based as we think we are, um, we're not really so. Um, and, you know, even a completely secular, non-religious person can find themselves cutting off an essential body part from another human being, uh, which is... Um, that's striking. It's really striking. Um, and I think it speaks to deeper issues about the human condition um, and what it is that we can become comfortable with. Um, you know, I am not of the belief, and I disagree with my father on this point, I'm not of the belief that, um, that uh, evil is something superhuman or supernatural. Um, I think evil comes from the human condition. I think it's an essential part of the human condition. And I think circumcision is uh, its an example of, um, and I mean, what's really, you know, you, you, Dr. Paul Fleiss has mentioned this, and I think that it, I've, I've seen it. Um, the people who do this, the, the physicians who, who perform this, the moles who perform this, um, many times literally do not hear the baby crying. Um, and what that says to me is that there's some kind of psychological mechanism kicking in. Um, and I mean, this is a, a sort of small, a smaller evil compared to some other evils that we're familiar with that people are capable of, of engaging in. Uh, but it comes from being human and the struggle of being a good human being. Uh, it doesn't matter whether, and this is part of the reason why, you know, as much as I appreciate the new atheists for their, um, you know, uh, important critiques of certain aspects of religion, um, you know, 
you can you can it's it's legitimate to critique religion uh, for certain things, but it's not really about that. It's not like religion is this sort of force that comes in and makes people do bad things. Human beings are built for both good and evil. And um, unfortunately, sometimes, and this will happen as long as we're human beings, people engage in evil and um, that sort of becomes a part of cultural practice in a very deeply embedded way to the point where uh, you don't even think about what you're doing anymore and you're not even engaged um, with your senses at the time. Um, hypothetically, um, like w with the San Francisco uh, legislation that was being tried to get pushed through to make it illegal, say at some point in the future it does become illegal. Where does that put members of the Jewish faith that still want to have it done? Do you think it will be accepted and, and dealt with or, or would there be something else? All right, so let me just go on record saying I don't think that's ever going to happen in this country. Um, not because I don't think it should, just because the current constellation of political forces and the way um, things work, I just don't see it happening. I don't think the people who proposed the San Francisco ballot initiative earlier in the summer actually thought that it was going to pass. I think they probably thought they had a decent chance of getting it on the ballot, but I don't think they ever thought it would sort of stand up. I think that was... Um, a very uh, uh, powerful publicity stunt, uh, for lack of a better word. And not in a I'm not meaning this derogatorily. I think the hardest thing about circumcision is getting people to talk about it. And I, so I think they were incredibly successful by focusing the media's attention on this issue for two solid months. That's a huge win. Um, but if, if I were to take your hypothetical case, um, I can tell you right now that there are a number of Jews that I know who I don't consider to be particularly you know, sort of fundamentalist who have told me, and this sort of shocked me, that if circumcision became illegal in this country, they would leave. They would up and leave. Um, I think what we should be looking at is um, the fact that, you know, people are going to have different reactions to this. And the vast majority of American Jews um, were our culture to shift on this issue. I believe would probably shift with it, especially if people in the Jewish world like myself and there are others um, are successful in really engaging the community in a creative and constructive dialogue around this issue. Uh, I think most Jews would follow whatever the trend in American culture is. Um, I think there would always be a minority of Jews who would practice it no matter what, if it were illegal, if it, I mean, even if, I mean, you saw, um, Hershey Warsh, the rabbi who was uh, sitting in his kitchen in the red in my film, um, he, he would be happy to go to jail for something like this. I mean, you know, there's some people who just feel that way, but it's a, it's a fraction of a minority. And my task, I see my task on this issue in part as engaging um, the vast majority of Jews, including religious Jews, including Orthodox Jews, who are non-fundamentalist. Um, in a sort of creative and constructive discussion about how to move forward on this. Because the bottom line is, you've got two options. That's what I'm trying to show in my film, is that, you know, you can go the fundamentalist route. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a consistent position to have what Hershey Warsh said. He takes all the data. He's not denying anything or pretending like certain facts don't exist. And he says, I'm an abuser. 
and God told me to do this. You have that, and then you have the rest of us, you know, and there's a lot of us who sort of believe that the human enterprise and human ethics play a key role, a vital role in the evolution of the Jewish tradition. And my, my burden and my task is to get those Jews to talk about this. Um, uh, I don't know how successful I've been so far, but I'm working on it. Um, I have a question about, uh, it seems like a lot of the origin of this is because the, um, it, is, is in the ritual and the, in, the, in the symbolism. And if you think about lots of other rituals and symbolic acts, it evolves over time. So one thing that comes to mind is in the Catholic Church, uh, once you recognize that there might be alcoholics in the audience, you give them grape juice rather than the real stuff. And so I just wonder, have, have there been any movement in this area where you would substitute it? You know, that the, that the substitution of the covenant is, and the way you interpret what needs to be done is, you show the knife or you, or even have a smaller cut in, in it that heals or, I don't know, even inflicts a tattoo. You know, I mean, something that's uh, symbolic of the covenant, but not, not so severe. It seems like there could be some, um, some parallels that you could look at at, other, at the evolution of other rituals over time, at least for those who are willing to accept less than a literal interpretation of the text. Yeah, and I mean, I think certain, um, certain ideas have been proposed. Um, but for the most part, um, the debate over this issue uh, has not moved in that direction at all. I mean, you know, very, in a very disappointing um, sort of realization for me, the liberal, all the liberal Jews that I present in the film and that I've met in reality with a few notable exceptions, but I mean for the most part, um, aren't willing to touch this. And that has to do with um, the history of the liberal movements uh, in America and the fact that they... Um, I mean, they've been eclipsed in many ways by the Orthodox. There's been a huge shift to the right in the Jewish world. Uh, and so the liberal Jews are now look, constantly looking over their shoulders. This is since World War II, more or less. Um, and they've just, they've lost their bite. You know, when the reformers started in the late 19th century, there was actually a, a big debate over circumcision. It, you know, it, it didn't um, lead in the direction I would have liked it to have led. But there was a huge debate, and the, the reformers took this issue really seriously. Um, nowadays, I mean, you have rabbis like Donnie Aaron and I mean, just people who are burying their heads in the sand and just not, um, not daring thinkers, uh, not people who are willing to grapple with, uh, difficult realities. So, uh, but, um, you know, you hear every now and then things, uh, earlier this, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, a journalist at the Jewish Daily Forward named Jay Michelson recommended that we go back to a less radical form of circumcision, um, which I don't think actually solves anything because it still involved the removal of the ridge band, um, and it's still a human rights violation. Um, you have a, there's a bizarre um, feminist uh, take on this, which was um, someone suggested that we should start a ritual for girls, right? This is going in the wrong direction, of course, uh, in which you um, break the hymen of baby girls uh, as a sort of, um, you know, analogous thing so that it's no longer, you know, a patriarchal sexist thing, but that like there's, I guess, uh, equal discrimination or something. I don't know how to put it. It's a, hor a horrifying thought, of course. Um, and, but, you know, there's sort of a cold consistency to it, if you will. Um, sort of similar to the cultural relativists who 
want to see uh, female genital cut cutting practices protected in this country and not made illegal, um, which is at least a more consistent position than people who think male circumcision is okay and female circumcision is not. They're just, you know, they've got it backwards. Instead of adding harm, we should be subtracting harm. Um, but yeah, for the most part, no one's really, um, we haven't gotten that far. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Jewish people are in lockdown ever since the Holocaust. And it's a, it's a tragic thing for me to see. I'm trying not to be that. I'm trying to, you know, uh, as a person who has a deep respect for the traditions of the, you know, for the, the heritage of the Holocaust, my grandfather's a Holocaust survivor, I, I don't think that Jews in the 21st century should be um, in lockdown anymore. And I think our tradition needs to move. So I'm trying. was um, and you all obviously told me what your mother's response was um, but how about the rest of your family how do they feel about what you what, this film and what you're doing and, and and your community in general so I have um, a large family uh, I have four sisters and one brother you met my brother in the film uh, my brother is a who's now a shaman in training and um, uh, has said that he would never ever circumcise a baby uh, he thinks it's absolutely wrong. Um, and I, I take a little credit for that. Um, uh, he, he, his um, sort of take on it is that the, the trauma of going through something like that at that age is just unimaginable and from, from his perspective, from a sort of energetic, um, you know, psychological perspective. Uh, sort of space like the, that inflicting that kind of pain on a person that young is just has horrible consequences um i haven't really spoken to many other members of my family about it my sister Batya likes to hear me argue about it um so she comes to some of my public debates um and uh i do have a sister who uh, circumcised two of her sons um, she's a very religious woman, and uh, I did have a talk to her before the uh, circumcision of her first son. Um, you know, um, my community, um, you know, I think people think I'm weird. Um, people think I'm strange. Like, why are you obsessed with penises? <laughs> and, you know, why do you always talk about foreskin? Like, I think people think it's weird, and um, some people don't know how to deal with it. Some people get defensive around it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not a normal position for a good Jewish boy to have. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, I think, um, you know, I, I really love it when someone comes up to me and, you know, usually like under their breath, they'll say something like, you know, I, I really agree with you. I can't really like, I can't, I can't tell anyone, but like, <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I, thanks, thanks for talking about it. Thanks for making the movie. And you know, it happens sometimes. Sometimes at a screening, someone will catch me in a corner and like, just be like, kind of like you know, <laughs> so I like that. Um, yeah. Um, I guess just to second that, I wanted to commend you and compliment you for having the strength to um, stand by your conviction and actually have that conversation with your father with his strong moral convictions, I think that must have been difficult for you at times to then have that relationship with your father. So commend you on having the strength to do that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, you know, I've had this kind of a relationship with my father ever since I was a teenager, and we've had these back and forths about a lot of different issues. Um, 
it's been archetypal. And I, when I set out to make this film, I was kind of like, you know, I wonder if, you know, I caught some of this on film, how that would, you know, how that would go over. And of course it's, I mean, my dad's got great screen presence. I mean, he's a, he's, <laughs> he's a character. So uh, it, I think it worked in the film's favor. Um, and of course he has a British accent, so it sounds like you're talking to God, which always helps. <laughs> Yes, I, I thought one of the most touching parts of the movie was at the end when you were speaking to your father and in contrast to his earlier interview, he said that he would uh, see it as your choice if you have a son, whether to circumcise or not, and he would accept it um, as opposed to the earlier interview where it seemed that he was dead set against it and it would just you know, d destroy him if that happened. And I just wanted um, to ask you sort of how that came about, maybe how much time there was between those interviews. And I think one reason I, I loved that part so much was that so much of the reading that I do um, about sons that are upset that they were circumcised by their parents is that now they don't speak to their parents. So they're terribly angry and it's a, it's a horrible situation with the parents. But it seems that you and he have made a piece about it. Yeah, it was... Um and, and part of the thing that's so personally poignant to me about the whole process of making the film and shepherding the film into the world um, was that it was a healing experience for us around the wounding experience. And um, the, the, just to give you a genealogy of our conversations, we actually had three conversations. You only saw two or parts of two uh, over the course of 18 months. Uh, the second one isn't in the film because it was um, uh, uh, it was very bad, <laughs> um, and it it was you know full of awkward silences and sort of tense moments and angry exchanges and it, it wasn't helping the film at all. Um, but that did happen. Uh, that was the second conversation. Uh, it was pretty intense. Um, but yes, my father shifted over the course of the 18 months of making the film. I mean, you know, he said things like, I think you're obsessed with circumcision, <laughs> um, you know, privately. And, uh, it, but it was a process and it was a, a healing process. And the, the moment that, you, that you're referring to at the end was a complete surprise to me. It was not something I knew was gonna happen. It's not something we planned or anything like that. And um, I did have a sense, the reason I went back for a third time is because I had a sense that he hadn't said everything he wanted to say. Um, and I thought, you know, he might have something important or interesting to say. I didn't expect that moment of humanity um, that, that you saw. Um, but I, it was a wonderful surprise. And uh, we've progressed since then, too. He's been supportive of my work in this, despite the fact that there are social costs to being so. The, the world that he walks in. Uh, I don't know of any specific examples, but I'm sure... He's, uh, he's getting it, <laughs> not least of all from my mother. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, but it, it was a wonderful healing experience for, for, for our relationship. And I think, again, so poignant because it's over this primal wounding. Do you think that it's, it's going, your film is going to be picked up? Uh, is it, can you get it on Netflix? Uh, Miramax, talk to Kevin Smith, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, the film came out in 2007, and we shopped it around to a lot of places, including film festivals and, um, you know, independent studios, and um, no. Um, we, uh, we went, and we live in a wonderful, marvelous age where there are alternatives, 
um, because there's a time at which you know someone could have gone through all the trouble of making a film and no one would have ever seen it but we live in an age where we have the internet and you know we sell DVDs through our website and we continue to do so um, and uh, I put up a quite an extensive part of the film on YouTube for people to, to take a look at and check out. And um, so we've gone the uh, independent distribution route. Uh, and, you know, f frankly, in 2007, um, I, I don't... And I, it, I mean, it's hard for me to speak as the person who made the film wanting, you know, believing I did something good and wanting it to get out there and, you know... Maybe people didn't like the filmmaking. Maybe they thought it was, I don't know, you know, wasn't a good film. But I, I sense and I, I have some evidence of the fact that it's not my filmmaking that prevented people from picking this up or, you know, being interested. I mean, there are two, there are two issues. Number one, the culture, uh, there's a, the, the culture was not ready to even deal with this when I made it. I'm realizing that now because now, four years later, things are very different. You know, film festivals are approaching us. There's this tour that we're on now. Um, so there's clearly things have shifted in a way. Um, and the second thing is it's a very hard thing to market. I mean, you know, it's a it's sort of a religious film that no religious audience would actually go to. Um, you know, it's, uh, and it's, uh, so, and then the, the sort of, you know, new atheist crowd probably would be uncomfortable with the religious content for different reasons. Um, so, you know, I think they're genuine barriers to entry here. Um, but I'm really happy to be on this tour and I'm really happy that, um, you know, it has a new life over the last couple of years and that people are really wanting to talk about it and wanting to see it. Um, you know, I poured my heart and soul into it and, uh, I'm glad to see that, uh, that, that I'm able to do something with it. I just wonder if you've approached the medical community with your film. Throughout the course of the film, you know, I talked to my father's a physician. He's a peripheral neurologist and pain management specialist. Uh, Leonard Glick, the anthropologist, is also a physician. Um, and then the, the two physicians that I interviewed, um, Dr. Marks and Dr. Mizells. Um, what I would say about the medical profession that I find um, particularly disturbing is, um, well, first of all, the sort of corporate language that I'm starting to pick up, <laughs> you know, the, the patients or clients, where it's like, it's like this corporate mentality, you know, that you have a customer and, you know, you're providing healthcare and there's demand for certain procedures. So like that language makes me very uncomfortable, but, but more to the point, um, I find it really disturbing that a doctor can say to me with a straight face, there are no medical reasons for doing this and then turn around and do hundreds of them it's just um i want to reach down and like pull the human out or something you know like like why why would you do that you're admitting to me that there are no medical benefits to it and and the thing that's frustrating to me about physicians um and i almost became one um is that they don't there seems to be a disconnect you know, and I don't know if this has to do with that corporate thing I was talking about where they, they just sort of see themselves as a small cog in a large machine or um, if they're just unable to admit that they're doing something really horrible. But I, I, I find it enormously frustrating to speak to physicians about this. Um, and I don't want to be, I don't want to like sort of lay blame all at, at their feet. I think that to an extent, they're a little bit disempowered 
um, in the in the current system. Uh, but at the same time, they're individuals and they're human beings, and they make moral choices. And they're making a horrible moral choice around this issue. And you know, I want to like shake them by the lapels or by the white coat and say, "What are you doing?" But yeah, I don't know. Take one more question. Well, not so much a question, just um, following up on, on what you had just said about um, the, the woman doctor who had performed the circumcision. Um, something I remembered from the film when you were just talking about you know, the, um, the disconnect in the mind and, and why is it there with them. And, um, and I, the, uh, one sentence that really just struck me from this movie is when she's circumcising the baby and she says to him, it's not my fault. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that scene, um, you know, since I've been watching this film quite a bit over the last month. And I think what happened was, um, and this is kind of a remarkable cinematic moment for me anyway, but I think what happened was uh, under normal circumstances, that in, internal dialogue that she was going through um, with herself would not have even occurred. I think the presence of the camera in the room and my presence there as sort of a witness and an observer, and she knew I was there to film the circumcision, I think it punctured her defense mechanism. And I think what happened was it forced her then to justify what she's doing to herself as she's doing it. Um, which is, again, like I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm in shock that I got that. <laughs> I mean, it's really like, it's quite remarkable and it's striking when, she, when you, you're hearing her like say these things, like she's abusing this baby in a, in a, in a profound way and trying to justify it to herself as she's doing it. Um, and I just, you know, in that, when I think about that, I think about also the, the effects, the dehumanizing effects that this has on the practitioners. Because it's not just, I mean, you, you don't think about that, obviously, but, but it, it, it's also having a terrible effect on the practitioner's humanity. Um, and that's tragic, too. That's, that's its own tragedy. All right, last, uh, last question. No, no, please. Yeah, that really struck me. I, I, when I saw the film the first time, I thought the same thing. It really, really was um, striking, her saying that. Um, and and um, the woman in front of me, I'm sorry. Oh, that's me. okay. Um, but it, you said that she was saying that... Um, I've heard it hundreds of times. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these that, positions. That it really wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the Mohalet's choice. Um, but I think, I think what was, what's striking to me about what you said is that she really does have a choice. You could say no. You don't have you to could do say the procedure. No. What they feel pressure from often is the parents. The parents want this procedure done for whatever reason, whether it's religious or not. Mm -hmm. Yes, they could say no. Yeah. But I think it, they're just programmed to do what the parents yeah, want. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they would say no if a parent came in and said, I want you to take a little bit off of my daughter's clitoris. Yeah, right. Well, thank you all so much. Um, that's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at 
cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 